Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. I'm Michael Cromer, a marketing associate here at ARC, and I'm here with my colleague, marketing manager, Caroline Wood. How's it going, Caroline? It's going well. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this special episode. I'm very excited that we're simultaneously making our FYI debut. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm, I'm also extremely excited to make the debut today. And it certainly has been a very up and down year with the world still battling the COVID-19 pandemic. But there has also been a lot to be thankful for in 2021. Definitely. A lot of exciting things have happened here at ARC over the past year. We kicked things off with Big Ideas 2021 back in January. It's wild to think that we also launched our Swag for Good store, where 100% of the proceeds go towards various initiatives, including cancer research and COVID relief. We also had the B Word Conference featuring some incredible guests, including Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey. Of course, we can't forget ARC's move to St. Petersburg, Florida. So yeah, a lot is happening, has happened. And of course, we can't forget the continuation of many content initiatives, including this, FYI. Yeah, and I'm so excited to be joining the FYI because our, our podcast listeners over the past year have more than doubled. And we continue to prove our global presence with listens coming from 207 countries from around the world. The U.S. and Canada were still our top two countries, much like last year. But we also had listens from Australia, Germany, the U.K., Singapore, India, and many others. And we also published some very fascinating and engaging episodes, ranging in topics from NFTs to autonomous driving to the genomic revolution. Our most listened to episode was actually our first episode from this year, Understanding mRNA with ARC analyst Ali Ehrman. In February, she sat down with Moderna and Arcturus Therapeutics to discuss the future of mRNA and how it could be used in and for the development of vaccines. Yeah, that episode certainly set the tone for the year, obviously, with the COVID-19 pandemic still raging on. Another popular episode that I really enjoyed this year was with analyst Max Friedrich. It was published in August. Max got the opportunity to discuss cross-border payment disruption with Ham Saranjogi, the co-founder of Chipper Cash, a disruptive African payment platform. That was a wonderful episode. Just one of many insightful and engaging ones we published this year. Uh, In fact, we published 26 episodes of FYI, getting us to a grand total of 114. So today... Michael, I know that we're going to try and give Spotify Wrapped a run for their money by showcasing some of our most listened to episodes. Yeah, episodes that you'll hear excerpts from include the aforementioned conversation with Ali Ehrman that she had with Stefan Bansel, the CEO of Moderna, on the future of mRNA. And you'll also hear a portion of Tasha Keeney's conversation with Alex Kendall, the co-founder and CEO of Wave.ai as they discuss autonomous vehicles being powered by end-to-end deep learning. After that, you'll hear from Do Kwan, founder and CEO of Terraform Labs and the Terraform blockchain, speak with ARC analyst Frank Downing, and then you'll hear about the competitive mobile gaming landscape from Skills founder and CEO Andrew Paradise, who sat down with research team members Nick Gruss and Andrew Kim. And to round out the compilation, we return to Ali Ehrman to hear some of her conversation with Dr. David Liu as they discuss the exciting developments in therapeutic human gene editing. It should be a great episode. For sure. I 100% agree. From all of us at ARC, we want to thank all of our listeners for the incredible support throughout the past year. It has been a wild one for sure. It does not go unnoticed. So we're incredibly grateful for all of your support. Thank you. We hope you and your loved ones have a very safe and healthy and happy holiday season. 
as well as a wonderful new year. Yeah. And we will be back with FYI in 2022 with a new and improved and more regular cadence. So stay tuned for that as well. Enjoy the episode. Episode 89, Understanding mRNA, Conversations with Moderna and Arcturus Therapeutics. So as we know, mRNA vaccines were basically thought of, created, developed, and tested in a really record amount of time. Prior to this, the fastest vaccine approval was in 1967, and that was for the mumps. And that took about four years. We believe there are many reasons why SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccines were developed quicker. Some of those include the funding, the quick pace of the sequencing of the virus, that being put online, Operation Warp Speed, etc. But is there anything really fundamental about mRNA vaccines that may make them quicker to develop and potentially even cheaper than other vaccine types like the more traditional killed, live attenuated, or synthetic viruses? Yes, I think the punchline to me is the fact that mRNA being an information molecule, we basically have a platform. And if you think about it, we use genetic information coming from sequencing as raw material. You know, the Chinese put the sequence of a virus online on January 11. In 48 hours, we locked down the design of a vaccine. And the vaccine that has been approved by the FDA in December is exactly the vaccine the team designed in 48 hours. And if you compare that to traditional technology, it is unthinkable. And then we went into the clinic in 42 days. And that's possible because, again, this is a platform. The chemistry to make the mRNA molecule is the same for all of our vaccines. The manufacturing process is the same for all of our vaccines in the same machine done by the same teams. And same thing for the lipid, the formulation that we put around it. And so I think what you see here that is such a disruption to the technologies of old vaccine that you mentioned is that we are moving from the world of analog to the world of digital with a platform that is using information. That's really, really helpful. And you mentioned actually about the delivery or the lipid nanoparticles. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about how the body breaks down that lipid nanoparticle or that container that the vaccine is in, especially in the context of repeat dosing and with potentially even future therapeutics, not only limited to the COVID-19 vaccine. Do you think there are any other sort of promising delivery mechanisms in the pipeline, or are you very excited about lipid nanoparticles? We are very excited about lipid nanoparticles or LNPs. What I want to caution people is that LNPs are not LNPs. It's a class of chemistry because it basically means it's a lipid, i.e. it's fat, nano, it's small, and particle, particle. That's all it says. And so what I mean by that, it's a bit like when you talk about a diesel engine. You have cars that can go and do the 24-hour Le Mans and don't break, cars that are very beautiful, cars that are very cheap. They are still cars. And so what we've learned about LNPs that we have been working on for most of our history is the old generation of lipids that some companies are still using, not Moderna, are actually very slow to process by the body. I'm talking days. Some old lipid could take up to six days or more in terms of a half-life. So you can think about when you inject them, they will stick around for a week or so. The lipid that is in our COVID vaccine is a lipid that our team developed and invented from a chemical structure standpoint, and we have IP on it that basically was designed by the team to be biodegradable. Its half-life is a few hours. So basically, you get injected, the lipid does its job, it protects the mRNA, gets it into the cell, and then it literally falls apart into the cell. The team designed it backward to think about what enzymes are naturally available in the cell that could basically degrade the lipid. And they designed the lipid that, again, the chemical structure, like chemistry, like you do it, and really design it backward, that it will literally fall apart as soon as it has done its job, which is to bring the mRNA inside the cell. That's really helpful. And I think that is also kind of bringing us back to safety in general. So we know mRNA is a genetic component, and it's sort of wrapped in this LMP delivery for Moderna. It doesn't use 
more of the traditional methods like a live attenuated killed or a synthetic virus. It also degrades in the body like the LMP. So because of all this, do you think that this is a safer type of vaccine? And then even broader for just therapy, do you think this will be just a safer way of administering therapies for people in the future? I do think so, Ali. And since we started Moderna, I've been always extremely focused on safety. I trained at Eli Lilly. And like any big pharmaceutical company, 90% of our drug used to fail in the clinic. And when you look at the industry, like 40 plus years ago, where drugs will fail for safety, but sometimes for lack of efficacy, given the scientific progress we have achieved as an industry and the academic world in the last 40 years, 20 years, the case where you see a drug not working for lack of efficacy is getting really rare. It happens still but it's really rare. So basically it means that most drugs die in clinical trials because of safety. And so as we built Moderna, I was always paranoid about safety. I mean, as you can imagine, you know, we were taking a bet on the new technology with incredible, at the time, 10 years ago, unknown unknowns. And so I pushed the team really hard saying, look, we're not going to work on this technology for 10 years if it's going to fail. Let's do all the really hard experiment. Let's understand how this works. And so some of the work we did in the early year, including with Academic Lab, was things like, does the mRNA get into the nucleus? As you know, the nucleus protects the DNA. And it was a big question for us is, could you get our synthetic mRNA into the nucleus? Because you could then potentially, like gene therapy, have a long-term risk of safety of integration into the DNA of a patient. And so this was really worrying me tremendously. And so we ran a lot of work including microscopy work where you will tag the synthetic mRNA and follow them in cells and do kind of time-lapse movies and stuff like that, very elaborative science. And we showed time and time and time again that all Moderna mRNA, the way it is done, does not get into the nucleus, which is very important for long-term safety. The other piece is the mRNA molecule that we designed, which is, again, different from other companies that are in the field. It has its peak protein production at around six hours. And at around 48 hours, it's completely gone. It's degraded inside the cell. It is chopped up in pieces of a four basic component, the nucleotide, you know, the four letters of life that basically are actually reused by the cell to make over genetic material. Uh, but the molecular mRNA is, is gone in 48 hours after injection. And as we just spoke about the LNP, the lipid, the lipid of Moderna because of how we designed it, a few hours after injection is also gone. So I think this is actually potentially a very safe technology if developed correctly. That's why not all mRNAs are alike. I go back to my car analogy. The other piece too, I think that sometimes people underappreciate is the fact that the raw material that we use is genetic information that exists in nature. If you look at the SARS-CoV-2, what was our raw material? The sequence of a full-length spike protein that we did not invent. We didn't come up with that thing. We just took it from nature. If you think about our therapeutic program, we have a very exciting program, for example, in phase two with AstraZeneca called VEGF, V-E-G-F, which is the name of a protein that is currently injected in people's heart after a heart attack with a biological hypothesis to create brand new blood vessel in the heart after an infarct to revascularize the heart, like regenerative medicine in your own body. The peak data look fantastic, preclinical, been published in Nature. The phase one data run by AZ show a very pristine safety profile. There was no tox, no liver enzyme, no cytokine, nothing. And shown in the phase 1B, increase in blood flow in humans. So that is very encouraging. Again, it is not the proof of a concept that's a phase two ongoing. But again, if you think about this drug, what was our raw material? The full sequence of a VEGF protein, which is in your DNA, in my DNA, is available online because the entire human genome is online. And so I think what people also sometimes underappreciate is our technology basically is a cassette that we build by a lot of building blocks that then you just drop in a set of instructions. But those instructions exist in nature. So the protein that is made by the synthetic mRNA inside a human is not a new chemical entity that has never been in human and is going to create tox that is unknown. 
it is a protein that has been in humans for hundreds of thousands of years. So it's pretty safe. Episode 90, Autonomous Vehicles Powered by End-to-End Deep Learning with Alex Kendall, Wave.ai. I'd love you to explain to our listeners why your approach is different to autonomous driving and why it's so adaptable. We've made the bold step about committing to going to a full end-to-end learning approach. This means that we use machine learning to optimize driving algorithm end-to-end, right from the input to the output, where the input for our self-driving car is camera sensor data and the output is a motion plan for the vehicle. And by learning end-to-end, it enables us to achieve a level of efficiency that you can't attain with a traditional rules or LIDAR or HD map-based approach that many of the incumbents use. By learning end-to-end, we can enable a very lean team of elite deep learning engineers to build a system and, and really scale to the complexity of driving through learning. If you think about the environments that we drive through in London, they're very complex. It's very hard to hand structure them with lane layouts because these medieval cities don't have clear lanes. There's very complex driving structure that needs to be learned in a high dimensional representation. So that's what we can do with machine learning. And we go a step beyond some of the other approaches that teams like, like Tesla do with machine learning for just perception, but also learn control. This is the critical thing. There's what we've seen enable breakthroughs in artificial intelligence like Google DeepMind's AlphaGo, the system that was able to use deep reinforcement learning to beat the world champion at the game of Go, one of the hardest board games. This was only possible or only shown to be possible through end-to-end learning. And we see the same technology being able to scale the complexities of urban driving. So the advantages to this approach seem clear. What would you say have you found are potential limitations or parts that might be more difficult with your approach? If you think about the key breakthroughs that have enabled this to be possible, it's only in the last couple of years that we've been able to train systems that have been data efficient enough and robust enough to actually put in the real world and not just exist in simulation. So this largely ruled it out for self-driving teams that got started certainly earlier in the 2010 decade. But some of the challenges that we face with this approach, I think the first one that we're quite open to admit is around interpretability. Typically, deep learning systems, although they're the most robust, generalizable systems that humanity knows how to build today, they tend to be quite high dimensional and hard to interpret. But having said that, that's rapidly changing. It's no longer interesting for PhD students to simply chase benchmarks. ImageNet's been, been largely solved. We've got amazing NLP systems today. To, today, the real research challenge in deep learning is how do we make these systems transparent, trustworthy, interpretable, and to really understand the causality in their decision-making. And so I think this is something that we're making great progress in. But for us, it's about being able to unlock and solve the problem of data efficiency, understanding the distribution of data we can train from and making sure it solves a problem robustly. Why does interpretability actually matter at a root level? Is that more for external parties to be able to say, like, oh, this is why it did this? Or is that for in terms of your own state of development to say, oh, we understand exactly what's being miscoded here to do relabeling or or whatever remediation steps you need to do? Yeah, look, I think that's a a bit of an open question. Certainly, it's, it's essential for us as engineers to be able to develop the system. It's unclear what the regulatory stance will be. It's most probable that we'll need to provide and we should be providing some interpretability for why a decision was made. But if you think about in a human car accident situation, humans aren't often able to provide their own interpretability for why a decision is made. They might provide an explanation, but is it a causal reasoning explanation? No, I don't think so. So I think we can do better than humans there, but how far we go is, is, is an ongoing discussion. And then on the consumer side, it's unclear how much customers will drive this. If you think about aircraft, an airline passenger doesn't have strong demand for interpretability of why and how the aircraft is flying. They just experience the transport service. And so I'm still unsure what the consumer demand will be for interpretability. We've seen systems like the autopilot provide a number of computer vision outputs on their display. There are a number of erroneous outputs, but consumers seem to prefer it, even though it's it's not always 100% accurate. So that's something that we're still actively exploring and, and have an open mind to. It seems like intrinsically the approach of imitation learning is, is very attractive, right? It's kind of like the way humans learn. And so you can read academic papers on it. And then implementation-wise, I'm sure it's challenging. Do you even go so far as you're not even labeling like street signs or anything? The system just has to figure out that a stop sign is a stop sign. Is that accurate? One of the things that blew me away was when we trained a system with imitation learning purely from images to driving commands. And we saw it for the first time, slow down at giveways and stop for traffic lights without ever having told it what a traffic light was. 
And when we actually, some of the interpretability systems that were built are systems like attention and saliency. When we looked at what the model was attentive to in the input image, it highlighted the traffic sign. And that was amazing that the model was able to discern the pattern in the data that was most strong in the driving behavior was things like the traffic light to be able to make that decision. So that blew me away. I think that was back in 2000, early 2019. But we use a number of learning signals from supervised to unsupervised or self-supervised to reinforcement learning. And one of the most important things for us to build up was an understanding of how to mix these together in a multitask fashion. So we can use expert policy data. We have chauffeur drivers driving our vehicles, constantly collecting expert driving data. We can learn to do imitation learning with that and that's supervised. We also have algorithms driving on public roads and that's on policy testing, essentially putting them through a driving school and we have safety drivers intervening and teaching them and that's reinforcement learning. We also have some supervised learning on semantic segmentation and then self-supervised learning on geometric understanding depth, how the world is laid out. And putting all these different learning signals together, going back to what I said about trying to make the most data efficient learning system, that's one of the biggest challenges that we're faced and what we spend a lot of time on. I had another question on labeling. I know that you use manual labeling now for things like intent. One, do you consider labeling a bottleneck? And is there a path to reducing the reliance on human labeling? We've only labeled two things to date. And that's the first one is semantic segmentation, which gives us a holistic scene understanding view in the image space. And then secondly is on traffic light detection. And we're actively pursuing methods to to reduce and, and divest for that because it like you say, it doesn't scale. And it also requires a human imposed view on the data. You have to enumerate the classes and there might be edge cases outside that. We much prefer moving towards open set or unknown understanding uh, through through self-supervision. And look, I think we can get there. Right now, we've spent in the order of £100,000 on labeling. So it's, it's a very small part of our budget. And the predominant factor of, of learning is, is self-supervision. You mentioned on prediction and intent prediction. That's actually something we do entirely with self-supervision. What we what you can think about doing is it's a very challenging problem because given a, a state of the world of the vehicle, we only get to see one possible future. But of course, there are many possible futures that could occur. You can debate whether the future is deterministic or not. But given the sensing capabilities that we have, there are many things that could happen. And what we do is, is we can look at what actually happens in the world and we can use that as a label to train our system to do prediction. And so we don't actually have to human label intent. We can look at what does occur, but then apply a probabilistic machine learning to actually understand the uncertainty around the distribution of future prediction and intent. And that's something that needs to scale with self-supervision because you just need so much data to be able to learn that complex, multi-agent understanding. Got it. Are you data constrained? What is the bottleneck of development for you or the critical path? If I could give you 10x as much data, is that what you need? Do you need 10x as much compute? Do you need like a bigger deep learning model? Is it like a better understanding of what modules you need to train? Give us a sense of where your friction points lie. Yeah, it's no longer compute. We just announced a really exciting partnership with Microsoft Azure, which is really letting us scale our learning through a a large, this large connected vehicle fleet we have bringing this data into the cloud to create this fleet learning loop and drive our compute. That's fantastic. We've got an incredible team of deep learning engineers and I'm confident the rate of innovation we're seeing there is going to address the problem. I would highlight data as being a really important problem for us to solve and a big bottleneck. But in particular, it's not the quantity of data, it's the quality and the distribution of data. Getting the right training data of edge cases. And if you think about, you know, when you try and teach a human, you want to provide them with stuff on the learning boundary, not examples that are too easy or or too hard that they get confused. You want to find the right level of data. And that changes over time as your model gets better. And we need to provide the right learning curriculum for our model. And getting the source of that data is something that we've thought a lot about. Episode 98, The Terra Blockchain with Do Kwon. Do Kwon is a very interesting character in the crypto um, currency or, or blockchain space. He is the co-founder of a blockchain called the Terra Blockchain. And Terra is roughly speaking, you know, there are thousands of blockchains in the world. And Terra is like a top 30 blockchain right now by market capitalization. And, you know, Do's background, he's, uh, he's Korean. And um, he founded a company called AnyFi, which is a kind of wireless mesh network company uh, before Terraform Labs, where he currently resides. He was listed Forbes 30 under 30. He was a Microsoft um, engineer as well as Apple and studied computer science at Stanford. So he's like very, very technical background and worked on AI and, and worked on um, networking protocols. But really, you know, he got into the blockchain space because he saw that 
in the kind of the last era that there were a lot of ICO projects and, and, and um, a lot of kind of crypto projects that were mostly self-serving. It's like, you know, what's crypto good for? Well, crypto is good for trading with crypto. It's like this circular economy. And he thought that basically it was never going to cross over to the mainstream um, if you take this kind of mindset and that you really need to build kind of an outside in mindset, which is what can crypto do for real people in the real world, for people who are not into blockchains and, and, and things like that. So that's kind of the perspective with which he started Terraform Labs. I guess the first project they launched and it's small, it's kind of sprawled into many projects is, is a blockchain called Terra, um, uh, which is, uh, which is actually, there are actually two tokens uh, underneath. There's the Terra stablecoin called uh, UST, and there is the uh, governance token for um, the Terra ecosystem called Luna. So Terra, Luna, Earth, and Moon are kind of this um, kind of two-sided uh, ecosystem for, for the whole blockchain. And if you zoom out, you know, where does this fit? Why are we talking about this particular blockchain? Well, one way to think about it is this is the only crypto project with real world users um, or users who are not like, well, who may not even know they're using it, which is kind of how you want it to be, right? You want the technologies to kind of melt away into the background. Their initial go to market plan was actually to target merchants and consumers in South Korea. So they came out with this thing called Chai, which is kind of this um, uh, kind of debit card and payment network that uh, on the back end uses the Terra blockchain. What, what is the benefit of using Terra on the back end? Um, the settlement time is dramatically faster and the fees are substantially lower. So um, typical credit card processing is like 2 to 3% fees using Terra on the back end. They bring it down to about 1%. Typical settlement times is um, 2 to 3 uh, many days potentially. Settlement means actually you know, you're getting the money that your consumers supposedly paid you for. Um, and on Terra, the blockchain settles um, in basically a few seconds. So the merchants gets the money much quicker. So it's actually a real benefit. And they have about two and a half million people in South Korea who are users of the, the Chai card. So that's like a some percent of the Korean population. Like that's actual penetration. Whereas if you look at other kind of crypto protocols, yes, you have lots of fans using things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but no, you know, real life person uses those protocols. So I think just like the most interesting thing for me is that they bootstrapped an actual commercial use case for this blockchain. In terms of kind of like where the Terra blockchain fits in the whole ecosystem and, and economy of, you know, hundreds of kind of blockchains that even people who are in the weeds can't keep track of. Um, very, very high level, you can think of uh, as there being three broad buckets um, in the 2021 landscape for blockchains. You have the Bitcoin ecosystem and all its kind of variations. Uh, and, you know, pre predominantly really today now it's Bitcoin. At one point it was, you know, forking and there were different flavors. Those flavors still exist. Bitcoin Cash still exists. Rogerverse still pushing that. There's Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, which... It's you know debatable how serious of a project that is, um, and there are Litecoin, which is you know kind of a basic fork of Bitcoin. So there's the Bitcoin-based stuff. That's the kind of original set. There's the Ethereum ecosystem, which is everything that's built off Ethereum, which is probably the largest and most diverse ecosystem today. And there are some forks in there as well, but most of it is essentially built around Ethereum. And then there's, the, call it the, the third generation blockchains that try to improve upon Ethereum. The Ethereum blockchain has some, it's faster than Bitcoin in terms of transaction count, but it's still quite limited and it's so popular now that that is congested. So a bunch of people are trying to build a better blockchain for what Ethereum does, which is basic being a platform for smart contracts. And that's kind of the third generation um, uh, approach. And you have things there like Solana, things like Cosmos, and Terra is one of those. So with Terraform Labs, you've built one of the top 30 most valuable blockchains in the world. Um, and what's interesting is you built it, you know, most people talk about either Bitcoin or Ethereum blockchains uh, today, or variations of those, but you've built an entire new, well, sort of a new blockchain um, called the Terra blockchain based on the Cosmos. Uh, SDK. That's a very interesting design choice. And I think you've reached really, really great success with this design choice. Um, how do you feel? Well, first, maybe how did you decide to make this design choice back in the day when you did? Um, how do you feel about it today? Yeah, so there's actually 
a lot of elegance to how Tendermint uh, is designed. So Tendermint is today the most widely used uh, delegated proof of stake consensus mechanism. Uh, it's used across uh, you know, a multitude of different projects that are building on top of the Cosmos SDK, but also a lot of sort of you know, new proof of stake mechanisms that came from it are sort of site variations on Tendermint. So uh, the design philosophy of how the Cosmos SDK and Tendermint is designed is frugality and simplicity. So uh, really all you're doing is that you're getting like a set of validators to vote on various types of blocks. And, you know, like the Cosmos SDK is a state-of-the-art tool that allows people to build sovereign blockchains on top of that. So, um, you know, not, not only weren't there as many options as uh, there are today when we were first starting to build out, but, you know, to this day, I believe uh, the Cosmos SDK and Tendermint are uh, some of the most interesting technical stacks to build on top of. Could you have built it on top of Ethereum if you had decided back in the day? You know, the products at Parachip have a very strong retail focus. So for example, like for example, uh, our day-to-day uh, payments across our apps like Chai, uh, the average ticket size is maybe around 50 bucks. So the idea that, you know, one of those transactions could cost like 18, $19 just didn't make sense. Um, and of course, like it goes up and down, but, you know, and Ethereum's block space is valuable because it's filled with whales, like doing $10 million trades. It just wasn't compatible with uh, some of the products that we're building. Gotcha. And of course, at the time, Cosmos was the really the only plausible blockchain that can give you the flexibility to do this. Today, there are more options available. If you were starting Terraform Labs today and with the same objectives, would you still pick Cosmos or would you maybe consider Polkadot or another kind of technology? I would say even today, the Cosmos SDK is the only tool that's available to, to ship sovereign blockchains very conveniently. So for example, like if you um, look at Polkadot, it has uh, shared security that you need to adopt. So you need to buy security from the main relay chain if you uh, you know want to maintain operations or for example, like uh, if you were to build on top of uh, Avalanche or Solana or uh, Ethereum, it's all the same, right? Like you still need to subscribe to the rules of the underlying blockchain to be able to do interesting things. And uh, I shipped pretty quickly, so I didn't want to wait for other people to get their stuff together, you know? <laughs> and I'd love to know a little bit about Terraform Labs. That's the umbrella company that's running everything, right? Right. How many um, people... Yeah, how many people are you guys and how, where is everyone dis- situated? Is it very distributed and how is the company organized? Yeah, so, um, you know, Terraform Labs is more of kind of like a very loose collection of companies that are building different things on top of the Terra network. Um, so, like, for example, we, we have sort of the main entity with, you know, the, the infrastructure teams and, you know, design and uh, support organizations and things like that that help to uh, provide the necessary resources and maintain the tools to keep the Terra blockchain running. So this is about 50 people. Uh, our payment suite of apps like Chai and Import and, you know, Mimi Pay collectively is a little bit over 100 people at this point. And then there's, you know, other companies like Buzzlink or, uh, uh, or like Anchor and things like that, which also have uh, some people on their own. So I think everything combined, like maybe 150, 160 people, 170, yeah. Okay, that sounds about right, because you guys are doing a lot. It's hard to keep up with. And are there certain aspects of the business of Terraform Labs, the company, that are starting to become decentralized and incorporating DAO-like concepts with the launch of some of the new platforms like Anchor and Mirror or core Terraform Labs functionality as well? Yeah, so... And that's like one of the big emphasis that we have at TFL. So, like, for example, when employees join for the first time, I tell them that this is not a business, we don't make any money and we plan to dissolve at some point. So don't get too comfortable, <laughs> right? Um, so a lot of the newer projects that we launched like Anchor or Mirror, uh, these were more or less, you know, pretty fair launches, uh, I, I, I would say. So like Anchor, for instance, had some institutional investors, but uh, the, the way that things are structured is that the governance of the entire protocol is uh, managed by people that hold ANC and there's a large distribution distribution of people that hold MIR and ANC tokens at this point. And then there's a community pool. Um, I think the mirror community pool is about, I think it's like a billion dollars now. 
Uh, and then Anchor's community pool is a little bit less, but basically it gives developers the tools to apply for grants directly from the protocol. So it's interesting because Andreessen Horowitz just raised like a billion dollar fund, but you could, in, instead of like trying to get an email intro to let's say Mark Andreessen or like Ben Horowitz, you can pitch a protocol directly and, and then argue with different people in the community to be able to get this type of funding. And you can do this from Mirror or Anchor or, or from the Terra community pool directly. So a lot of that's been happening so far. So we've seen projects like, for example, local Terra, uh, which is sort of like a P2P exchange uh, to be able to uh, change Terra stablecoins for fiat across different places in the world. Uh, infrastructure types of plays like, uh, for example, Block Daemon, uh, sort of like a Zapper.fi type of interface called Mirror Market. And uh, yeah, a lot of the new projects that are building on top of Terra, a lot of which we're just not that aware of, have been funded directly by the protocol from the community pool. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because one of the things that like came out to me when I read the Terra white paper was, you know, right from the beginning, there was a design for this growth focused fiscal policy. Has that been working as you expected in practice? Yeah, so now um, we have, I think a little bit over a billion dollars in the Terra community pool as well. And all of that just funded through burns over the last three months. So um, for, for this billion dollars, like I'm about to make a proposal to swap all of that to UST and then put that into sort of a leveraged insurance protocol called Ozone, which can be used to protect lots of DeFi uh, applications that are coming out of Terra, right? So, uh, but the idea is that, you know, when synergy happens with, you know, specific type of money, like the US dollar, like the government, a centralized government decides to allocate it to fund different types of projects. But what's kind of fascinating about Terra is that it has the same seniors dynamics, but that seniors can be allocated to, uh, you know, different things by the will of the community. Episode 100, Competitive Mobile Gaming with Andrew Paradise, CEO and founder of Skills. Welcome, Andrew, and thanks for coming on the show. We're very excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'd love to just start with a bit on your background because Skills wasn't the first company you were a part of creating. And if you could just tell us that journey towards Skills, how and why you ended up founding Skills all the way back in 2012, I'd love to just hear the setup for this wonderful run you've had with Skills so far. Sure. So by background, I'm a inventor turned entrepreneur turned business builder, but I've really been a lifelong gamer. I learned how to program from video games when I was a pretty small child. So when you think about my different endeavors, my most recent company, Art of Skills, I invented mobile self-checkout and it's a uh, mobile payments and data company prior to this that I sold to Intuit where I was a director when we were uh, getting skills off the ground. Skills is really the culmination of all my interests in one company. It's gaming, but even more than gaming, it's really a data and payments technology system built on top of video games and it enables video games to run, I say, better competitive experiences. It's an interesting thing to look at all the different things I've done across my career and see how they're represented in different facets inside of skills. And I'm just curious, what was the original vision? Was it always to create this competitive esports platform or was it more geared towards payments? Like what opportunity did you see back almost 10 years ago in the mobile esports space? The first time I thought of the idea of skills was actually when Valve open sourced the first game engine back in 2004. The idea for skills wasn't as interesting or lucrative back then because there was kind of no there there on building out a technology that would integrate into the game engines themselves. There were very few games built on the Half-Life engine back in 2004. And so as the world progressed and times changed, it so happened that companies like Unity and Unreal, they started further codifying and building out the gaming world and enabling more and more companies to take advantage of open source game engines. And as that happened, the opportunity for what skills could be for this technology idea became better and better. And at the same time, you had this interesting effect happening in the free-to-play mobile gaming market where developers were having more and more trouble monetizing their art existing schemas for monetizing video games, whether it's in-game advertising, which more or less directly attacks retention, or it's in-app purchasing, where I think you have a pretty significant drawback in that you really have to design your game from the ground up around this monetization schema. 
it became a very attractive thing to build skills and to offer the service to the developer community. And so that's the kind of the why now and why we got into this space in the first place. Gosh, and it is crazy to think 2012 because it is, you're right, it is nine years ago now. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's really interesting to see how the platform's grown in the two-sided marketplace where you have one side and the consumers, the other side developers. I'm just curious, you know, it's been now nine years. Where is the platform today? How is it growing? What kind of engagement are you seeing overall? And especially if you could just touch on maybe just overall mobile video gaming, because that's been on a massive run over the past nine years. So you've really hit this trend in the right timing of it. Yeah. Well, to use the sports quote that I love about why mobile gaming, we always quote Gretzky on, you got to skate where the puck is going, not where it's been. And when you think about mobile gaming and why it's so important, well, when we started, it was an $8 billion segment in 2012. It's 86 billion today. It's expected to be 161 billion by 2025. Not really that hard to imagine this when you think about it, because in 12, there were 800 million mobile devices. Today, there are 4 billion mobile devices and tablets. And in 2025, it's projected there'll be 10 billion. So when you think about mobile gaming and interactive content, it's really about content and experiences, consumer content that's designed for these devices that are now everywhere. In terms of where it's going, I think issues in terms of monetization that we saw back in 2012 when we started the business, they've only become more and more significant over time. Across the nine years we've been building, it's really been the same service, this B2B2C business model, where we enable developers to run better competitive video games. The market has been developing and we've very much been right timing what we built against this secular shift in consumer behavior. And in terms of the service and what we do, the platform enables developers to skip what would be a multi-hundred million dollar investment now in building a video game, just a technological build. And, and then even more importantly, as we've been networking together more and more game developers content, we're able to provide sophisticated data science around things like anti-cheat and anti-fraud that enable developers to run as a fairer gameplay and more competitive experiences than really have ever existed before skills. Yeah, that's amazing. And we were just, other Andrew on this podcast, Andrew Kim, we're just discussing kind of the growth in global gaming. And you touted these enormous figures. And we were looking at just Q1 of this year, mobile gaming had posted around $30 billion in global revenues, which is just insane to really think about how large this market is and the role that skills is playing in it. And I want to just touch on really the core functionality in this matchmaking and the skill-based gaming. Just curious to get your thoughts on how you set this up and how it's grown over time. Yeah. Basically, you're asking why we set up the service and how it's modified. Just in terms of the matchmaking side of, in terms of when I open up a skills game or a game built on top of skills, this matchmaking that you guys have built into the overall experience and that I'm matching with someone who's at a same skill level as me and how are you pulling in all of these data points and how you've kind of grown that side of the platform over time. Uh, yes, of course. Well, so when we set out to build the business, we realized that cheating and fraud were going to be one of the absolutely biggest hurdles. I was uh, somewhat of a hacker back in my heyday of programming when I was a kid. And I think when you talk about hacking on the internet and video games, it's sort of your perfect nexus when you introduce a real prize play inside of a game. And what I mean by that is you both can, as a hacker, get fame and fortune in one hack, <laughs> which makes us it, it just such an attractive target. When I was a programmer back in my teens, we'd even use hardware hacks to play games like Counter-Strike. So you can actually take a soldering iron, you can burn a hole in the chip on a ATI Radeon 100. And what happens is it actually, it stops the walls from rendering in Counter-Strike. And so when you think about the complexity of stopping cheating, it is really the same level of complexity as stopping viruses on the internet. And so we've just seen this really incredible level of attacks as we built the service out. And I think the positive side for our business is stopping those attacks, building out the technology to continuously protect the community. It creates a more and more formidable barrier to entry for anyone who would offer this kind of service. Because at the end of the day, our brand is entirely about trust and fairness. It's core to what we do. And trust, I'd say it's an esoteric concept. It's not a single feature. 
And as we've been building out more and more technology to stop cheating and fraud, and one of the things I think you just referenced, Nicholas, is that the concept of capturing hundreds of data points in a five-minute game session and then creating statistical maps of probabilistic next outcome, which is one of the many cool things we do, so real-time statistical detection of cheating. It really creates a differentiated barrier to entry for us, and it's a very interesting area of data science that attracts some of the best and brightest engineers. Yeah, that's amazing. And on that note, I just wanted to ask if you see any variation in the difficulty of implementing anti-cheat and anti-fraud measures across different genres and formats of games, including 1v1 versus larger multiplayer formats. When you think about matchmaking and the history of matchmaking, we studied everything from ELO, which is often quoted as a the go-to matchmaking uh, concept for video games it actually comes from Arvind Elo, the Hungarian mathematician who, you know, created Elo with this idea of building a better chess rating system. Applying it to video games has been uh, definitely somewhat flawed. And I think as we studied that, we studied what Microsoft did in terms of true skill. We looked at all the different work that folks had done in the history of matchmaking. We started with these great concepts and work that people had done in terms of algorithms around matchmaking, and then we expanded upon them. And I'd say similarly, when we thought about anti-cheat and anti-fraud, now matchmaking, I'd say, is definitely nuanced, whether it's 1v1 async or 1v1 synchronous. It is definitely different. Again, when you think about something like a uh, battle royale and how you'd want to do matchmaking there, anti-cheat and anti-fraud very much less so the many of the types of ways that someone would engage in cheating software hacks for example trying to load scripts onto a device things like that all of those types of cheating systems are pretty similar from video game to video game and so there's a lot of cross applicability as you explain this it seems like such a more complex problem than just match and this is how i framed my original question was just around the matchmaking side but not even realizing that there's this whole anti-fraud mechanism built into that. And maybe that's why, and this is my next question, why you don't see individual developers trying to build out this platform for a specific game and why they would choose a platform like Skills, which has already solved all of these really hard problems. Is that how you've experienced and maybe how conversations with game developers have gone before? Yeah, I think the number of things you have to get right from ensuring fair play to actually providing, uh, I'd say, a much higher expectation of customer service for this uh, type of service. It creates a, between the patented technology and the higher expectations from the consumer, it very much is the unique selling proposition of our business. It's very much our strategic mode. And going back to just the demand side of future game formats, how are you thinking about the growth of demand of asynchronous 1v1 and larger multiplayer formats, such as Battle Royale, which has seen a lot of traction in recent years? I think it's just like the console and computer world before it. If you look at both of those platforms for video games, they started with asynchronous video games. They moved into more simple 1v1 or 5v5 team type formats, and then eventually achieved some of the massive multiplayer type games that we now kind of know and love. You're going to see that same development on mobile. In fact, if you go over to the countries in the Far East, if you think about China, one of the most popular video games there is a mobile battle royale, right? It's a variant of player unknown battlegrounds, a popular IP that was originally developed for computer. So as the industry progresses from here, you know, I think more and more consumers are going to be seeking out deeper and richer and more sophisticated content experiences on mobile and tablet. I also think we'll see a growth of things like a controller or screen adaptations that can be attached to a mobile device to extend the computer into more of a console type experience. In many ways though, I would argue that a mobile device, it is a lot like a Game Boy. If you remember those from back in my day, <laughs> they, you know, it's a device, you think about a smartphone, it's a, almost a funny word because the majority of content that people download from the app stores is video games. The majority of time spent is video games. And so it's kind of interesting that we call it a smartphone instead of describing it as a gaming device. And finally, episode 106, Therapeutic Human Gene Editing with Dr. David Liu. Let's just start with something really easy. What is gene editing and what first interested you in it? Yeah, so first in all seriousness, I'm grateful that you organized this interview and 
I appreciate you teaching me how to use this crazy new thing. <laughs> Hopefully it sounds okay. Um, <laughs> thank you for doing all of that. And it's a pleasure being uh, your guest. So gene editing actually has a, a long, long history, far longer than I think most people outside of the field appreciate. In its most basic form, gene editing just means making some kind of purposeful change in a gene. And researchers have done that for decades. Not too long after the structure of DNA was elucidated in the 1950s, people were making changes in DNA. But the changes weren't always changes that we could control, either in their content or in where we were making those. And so what most people mean by gene editing these days is making specific changes at a specific target site in the DNA of a living cell or organism, preferably in, in ways that are relevant to human cells and eventually to human beings. And what got uh, you excited about it? <laughs> well, or, or like talk about, okay, yeah, specific to CRISPR and, and kind of the newer advances, you know, when did your research start really going after kind of the field that you're Yeah, so, so I think everybody in the molecular life sciences has long recognized the importance of DNA and of being able to make specific tailor-made changes in DNA. And our lab's specific interest in it actually predates CRISPR. As a chemist, I have long followed and admired the work, a number of luminary chemists who have made a little bit of a trying to address DNA as a piece of digital information with molecules, meaning address it in a programmable way. So Peter Durvin at Caltech is one example of a terrific chemist who developed a family of small molecules based on a natural product called dystomycin that could bind DNA sequences of your choosing with some specificity. That specificity of small molecules programming DNA days would be considered uh, modest, but at the time was really groundbreaking and innovative, both for its base chemistry, bioorganic chemistry skill, and for, I think, the even more important recognition of a great problem. How can we take this molecule of two copies of three billion letters, each of which has a slightly different shape, and be able to digitally address it, meaning to engage a specific site in the genome of our choosing? So, you know, Peter was, I think, one of the, the chemists to recognize early on the importance of that problem. So when I became a professor in 1999, uh, we had a series of projects, and one of the projects in our lab was affectionately named the Unifactor 2000, which stood for Universal Transcription Factor, and 2000 at the time seemed like a futuristic date, so it was the Unifactor 2000. And in that project, our goal was to develop a series of RNA molecules that could target any site in the genome of our choosing. This was before the discovery of CRISPR, so we didn't have such a wonderful tool at our disposal. And instead, we tinkered with RNAs that are capable of forming triplexes, triple helices, where the DNA double helix of the genome provided two strands, and a third strand of RNA programmed by us, in theory, the idea went, <laughs> would be able to engage a target sequence of our choosing, and we could then turn on, turn off, or cut that DNA sequence. That project crashed and burned. And we were never really successful because the conditions needed to get that triple helix to form didn't overlap well with the conditions that cells like to live in. So, so the project was a failure, but I think it planted the seed and helped to develop the seed of how powerful it would be if you could digitally engage any side of your choosing in the human genome. And so you asked about the advent of sort of the modern staples of modern beginnings of genome editing. And I think most people consider that to be zinc fingers, uh, zinc finger nucleases, tail proteins, or tail nucleases, and of course, CRISPR-Cas9. Each of those three platforms is a way to cut a DNA sequence of your choosing. And they each take advantage of a particular DNA binding platform, in all cases drawn from nature, but decoded, figured out by humans. So zinc fingers are a series of finger-like proteins that, when strung together like uh, beads on a necklace, can line up those fingers in a way that recognize the specific base pairs in DNA. And so seminal work of Carl Pabo and many others started to realize that to make possible the idea that we could engineer 
tailor-made zinc finger arrays, that is repeats of zinc fingers, chosen by researchers to bind DNA sequences of our choosing. And that turned out to be correct. It's a difficult to use form in that it's not quite a simple lookup table that allows you to bind any sequence of your choosing. But zinc finger arrays can be developed and refined in the laboratory that binds DNA sequences of one's choosing with high affinity and high specificity. And of course, the platform that Sangamo really was built on. And then the tail nucleases use equally fascinating set of proteins borrowed again from nature called uh, tail repeat arrays. These were bacteria that infected plants and the bacteria did something really remarkable. These proteins would bind, once they infected the plants, they would bind specific genes in the plants and change the expression of those genes to enable the plant pathogen to replicate, to survive. And ingenious researchers, including uh, Bogdanove, figured out that there was a one-to-one correspondence between the sequence of each tail repeat protein and the DNA base that that tail repeat protein would engage. And just like zinc fingers, you could string together these tail proteins one after the other and create a tail array that was long enough that it could uniquely recognize one site in the human genome. And those proteins work actually quite well, and they do behave more like there's a simple lookup table. It doesn't require as much expertise to develop a tail protein that binds effectively and selectively a DNA sequence of one's choosing. And of course, the gene editing renaissance got a real kick in the pants when CRISPR was first used for gene editing in the work pioneered by Emmanuel Charpentier, Jennifer Doudna, Juan Jean, George Church, Burgess Sixness, and others. And as I think this audience probably knows well, the main breakthrough of the CRISPR system, also borrowed from nature, is that the CRISPR-Cas proteins are ones that are programmed by RNA. And if your program is a piece of RNA, and the language of RNA binding DNA follows simple Watson-Crick-based pairing, it becomes much easier to reprogram a CRISPR complex so that it binds an RNA, sorry, that binds a DNA sequence of your choosing. And in the case of CRISPR-Cas9, the revolutionary gene editing protein, CRISPR-Cas9 plus its guide RNA cuts a DNA double helix. So zinc finger nucleases, talons, and CRISPR-Cas9 all fundamentally do the same chemical reaction. They take a DNA double helix and they cut it into two pieces. And that's really what initiated this modern gene editing renaissance. And all basically call it discovered over the past decade or so. I guess maybe zinc finger was a little earlier. Yeah, zinc fingers were older, starting in the 1990s, tail proteins in the 2000s, late 2000s, and then CRISPR-Cas9 used for gene editing first in 2012. You know, on the timescale of the life sciences, all of that is pretty recent. And I would say the development of the field, you know, in the past five to 10 years has really been sort of at an unprecedented speed, something unlike anything I've seen in the life sciences. And that's, you know, really a testament to how excited people are, how much talent is being drawn to this subject, and what a special, unique time in the history of science we're at, where the era of human gene editing, therapeutic human gene editing is already here. There are already humans walking this earth that have had their genomes modified specifically in a way to counteract a genetic disease. And you know, that's really a pretty momentous era, I think, in the history of man, because it is the first time that we've modified our own genomes in ways to combat serious genetic diseases. When you look at the, at the publications, it's pretty interesting. If you do sort of a PubMed search, you can see actually how CRISPR takes off from some of the other technologies. So even though some of these were invented before, because as you mentioned, it's just easier to use in the lab and, and more affordable, it's really sort of taken off. And you can even see that from sort of the publication standpoint, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, to me, it's one of the non-scientific take-home lessons of seeing the CRISPR revolution is that making something easy and accessible for scientists to use, even even ones that specialize in, you know, genetics, in mammalian cell manipulations, making it easy has a, an enormous impact on the reach and the scope and therefore ultimately the importance of the work. So, you know, people, I think especially in academia, may have a natural aversion to claiming advances by sort of making something easier than it used to be. It's not as though we didn't have ways before CRISPR of cutting the genome, but CRISPR made it far easier for many labs, most labs, to be able to do so. And that's made a, a huge difference. 
So Dr. Liu, I love your example that you gave. I think this was an endpoints where you talked about, it might not be a winner takes all. You know, I think you mentioned comparing CRISPR-Cas9 and maybe some sort of newer tech like base editing and prime editing. So maybe can you explain what is base editing, what is prime editing, both technologies that came from your lab, and sort of how they may all fit together. I think the example you gave was a boat truck, and I think it just really (laughs) makes it clear, you know, how they might work together. Right. So CRISPR-Cas9 zinc finger nucleases, tail nucleases, as I mentioned, they cut DNA. So they are molecular scissors. They cut the DNA double helix and break it into two pieces. And CRISPR-Cas9 was evolved in nature, or I should say evolved in nature, to mess up viral genes because CRISPR-Cas9 is an immune system that bacteria use to ward off viruses who are trying to infect the bacteria. So when a virus infects a bacteria, CRISPR-Cas9 can cut the viral gene. And cutting a piece of DNA, cutting a gene, is a very effective way to mess it up. So the motivation behind base editing was the simple recognition that for most genetic diseases, to study the disease or to treat the disease, we can't really do that well if we just mess up the gene. We need to actually precisely fix it. And it's very difficult in therapeutically relevant cells to make precise DNA changes by cutting the DNA. Cutting the DNA in a human cell is pretty traumatic. It has many of the same consequences that the bacteria that use CRISPR-Cas9 to mess up virus DNA evolved. It disrupts genes. It also causes cells to commit suicide, undergo apoptosis. It causes chromosomal rearrangements, large deletions at the cut site. A recent series of papers described from David Pelham and others described this incredibly fascinating process called chromothripsis that he detected in sort of single-digit percentage cells treated with CRISPR-Cas9 scissors, meaning when you cut DNA in a chromosome, there is a measurable percentage of outcomes in which other things beyond even messing up the target gene happen. You can get large deletions of thousands or even hundreds of thousands or millions of, of DNA bases. You can get translocations. Part of one chromosome ends up stuck onto another chromosome. And in perhaps the most dramatic cases, you can get chromothripsis, which is uh, literally shattering and recombination of all the shattered pieces in a random order of a chromosome. And these larger changes are not easy to detect, which is in part why it's taken scientists a number of years to rigorously characterize the extent to which they happen. But I think it's pretty well accepted that in at least some kinds of cells, including in some cases, cells we care about, like hematopoietic stem cells for potential therapeutic uses, making double-stranded cuts can lead to unwanted consequences. So the combination of, I think, those two simple realizations that, number one, messing up a gene can be useful for fixing some genetic diseases, but not for most genetic diseases where you need correction instead. And number two, double-stranded breaks are not well tolerated by most living systems and is sort of considered a significant insult to the cell. That's what motivated our lab's development of base editing and prime editing. So base editing and prime editing share in common that they don't make double-stranded DNA cuts. For the aficionados out there, they nick the DNA. A nick is a single-stranded cut, but nicks happen thousands of times a day in every cell, it's thought. You can look at the research of Tomas Lindahl and others who have characterized the abundance of nicks in our genomes. Uh, NICs are a natural consequence of many uh, enzymatic processes that work on DNA. And when you nick a DNA double helix, when you nick one DNA strand, the double helix doesn't fall apart. The two pieces of the nick strand are sort of like uh, lightly frayed edges on the intact strand, but they stay together. There's no loss of the information of which end ends up connected with which other end. So base editing and prime editing either don't cut DNA at all or nick DNA, depending on which base editor you're using. Prime editing makes at least one nick in the DNA, but it's designed to, both technologies are designed to minimize the formation of double-stranded breaks. So how do you end up precisely editing, which is the goal of base editing and prime editing, as opposed to disrupting genes with a base editor or a prime editor? So with a base editor, the base editing agent consists of a programmable DNA binding protein, either a disabled CRISPR-Cas9 that can no longer cut the DNA double helix, or a tail repeat array, which is taken from the talons uh, that I just talked about, linked to an enzyme that rearranges the atoms in one DNA base to instead become a different DNA base. 
So base editors actually go into a target DNA site and perform chemistry on the base itself, on the DNA letter itself, so that it becomes a different letter. And as a result, base editors can make at least four kinds of changes quite well and a, and a couple others with a little bit, uh, bit bigger challenges. But it can do well the conversion of C to T, T to C, A to G, or G to A. And those happen to be the four most common kinds of mutations that are associated with genetic disease. So base editors have the ability to make single letter swaps of some of the most common kinds of mutations in DNA. And they can do so without repeating double-strand DNA breaks. Prime editors are another kind of engineered molecular machine that work by a, a different mechanism. They also use a programmable DNA binding protein, CRISPR-Cas9, also disabled so that it can no longer cut the DNA double helix. But instead of rearranging the atoms on one DNA base to become a different base, prime editors take a target DNA strand and directly copy a new sequence of DNA onto that target DNA strand in a way that ends up replacing the original DNA sequence. So that's why we think of prime editing as a search and replace uh, gene editing technology. So if you, the analogy that I've used before is if CRISPR-Cas9 is a pair of molecular scissors that cuts DNA, then you can think of base editors as a pencil, rewrites individual letters in DNA, and you prime editors as a kind of molecular word processor that uh, finds a specific DNA sequence and replaces that DNA sequence with a new one by directly writing the new sequence onto the target DNA strand and helping to guide the cell through the DNA repair processes that eventually cause that newly written DNA to replace the original DNA sequence. So that's in a nutshell how a base editor and a, you know, what a base editor and a prime editor do. ARC Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.